Hey there, and thanks for tuning in to a message from New King Church. We're a church located in South Burlington, Vermont, and our prayer is that this resource would help you find and follow Jesus. If you want to know more about our church and the ministries we have, check us out at newkingchurch.com. Morning. Good to see all of you. I'd like to hear the, uh, the good... Good morning. That came from your mouth just now. That was encouraging. I know that you guys are awake. Is everybody here awake this morning? Yes. Great. Uh, the people who didn't raise their hand, I guess you're not. That's fine. That's good. Um, <clears throat> so I'm, uh, I'm Aaron. I'm a pastor here at New King Church. So glad to have you here. If you are a guest with us, we are delighted to have you here, to have you in our presence, to be able to uh, be part of this story of you seeking, whatever you're doing, whatever you're here for. And, uh, and if you come here regularly, well, we're glad that you keep coming, that you're still here. So uh, thanks for coming. Um, <clears throat> so in case you need a reminder, we have been in a series on the Gospel of Matthew called Kingdom Come. And we've been learning so much from that series, haven't we, everybody? Is that right? Have you? Yeah? Okay. Just making sure. So uh, we don't want to waste our time here, right? So we've been in a series, and it's called Kingdom Come, and uh, we're looking at this kingdom of God, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven that is breaking out on earth, and we're learning about its nature. What does that mean? We're learning about the nature of the king himself who reigns, and we're learning about us, the citizens of this kingdom that Christ is bringing. Uh, And last week we learned about the path that every citizen of this kingdom must take, the very same path that our King Jesus himself took, a path to glory through self-denial and self-sacrifice. So uh, today we're going to go deep into the Word. If you know what passage that we're going to be dealing with today, then you know we're about to go deep into the Word. It's a very complicated passage, actually, some of the elements here. And, um, and you know, sometimes the Scriptures present us with very difficult questions, things that are difficult for us to comprehend. And it is a joy, though, when guided by the Holy Spirit— we can delve deep into His Word. We can mine the gold. We can come to a new comprehension and understanding of the deep things of the Lord, the mysteries that He is revealing to His people by His Spirit and through His Word. Amen? So that's, that's what we're going to be doing a lot of today is going deep, 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 okay? And so I need you to get, get out your pickaxes and, uh, and mine with me. So, so we're going to go deep today. So it's going to be um, a, lot of, a lot of knowledge, a lot of information, okay? And it's going to help us see, though, ultimately, this theme of God's eternal plan to glorify His Son to reveal to us the glory of His Son, Jesus Christ, and to glorify Him by bringing His kingdom and His eternal reign, His dominion over all things, and for His dominion and His image, the glory of His image, to fill all things, all things in this material universe. So we're going to see a little bit about that. Hopefully we'll be able to draw out that theme. Hopefully you'll be able to see it without me even drawing it out, uh, just because I told you it. So uh, you have the the key to understanding the sermon now. Um, So 
Um, so you really need to pay attention. No sleeping today, all right? I'll be watching. So let's feast on the riches of the Word of God. But in today's passage, there are many things that we could have talked about. So many things. We could have done, honestly, a whole series on this passage, like at least three, if not four or five sermons on this. And uh, so that's why it's going to be so long today. No, I really tried to cut it, everybody. I tried to cut it, so we'll see how that goes. Um, But we know how that goes, right? So we're going to look at just three things in this passage. Just three things I want us to focus on. Actually, I have a slide for it. It's the, it should be the first slide. The three things that I, I want us to look at in the passage. Um, there it is. So, so we'll first see how the apostles beheld King Jesus in his glory. And we'll also learn a lot about uh, the prophecies about how prophecy works, right? This thing that God has used to unfold his eternal plan and to give us snippets and help us see that he is what he's doing, his plan. And so we're going we're gonna to see how prophecy works um, in the layered meanings of the coming of Jesus' kingdom as well as in the layered meanings of the coming of his herald, Elijah. Okay, and you're probably wondering, what does that mean? Well, we're about to read the text, don't worry. But I want to give you that so you can have an idea of where we're going when we read through the passage. So, uh, let's first, before we read the passage, invite the Father to be our teacher. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word that you reveal these mysteries to us, these plans that you have made since before the foundation of the world for your Son to be revealed in all his glory. This image of perfection, this brilliant radiance of your Son, and for his kingdom to reign and through us, his church, to fill all things. Lord, we we thank you that you have revealed these things to the foolish, the weak, the children of this world, the unwise, we thank you for revealing it to us, Lord. And we ask now that by your Spirit, you would teach us these things. Help us to comprehend them, Lord. Teach us about your kingdom. Teach us about the glory of your Son. Teach us about beholding him who is the glory and perfection and image of you. So teach us about the coming of your kingdom and teach us all things that you want to teach us today for your glory to abound lord in this generation let it be and we pray all this in the name and power of your son jesus the christ amen amen so um now would you please rise with me now for the reading of his word. And uh, I'm going to proclaim at the end, this is the word of the Lord, and you can respond with gratitude. Thanks be to God. So we're actually starting in chapter 16, two verses earlier, uh, because it's pretty relevant to this passage today. So it's chapter 16, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then He will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. 
and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So let's jump into it. The first thing that I want you to consider today is one of the most wonderful things that we see in all of Scripture. It's the transfiguration of Jesus. It's the revealing of the King. It's when the foremost of his apostles and disciples saw him for who he truly was. His true nature peeled back, right? So that's verse 2. He was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Now, the Greek word there for transfiguration, it's actually a word that you're pretty familiar with because it's metamorphothe. You guys use that word pretty often, right? Well, that word is where we get our word metamorphosis, right? As in the metamorphosis of a worm or a caterpillar to a butterfly, right? And so this idea is that this is the revealing of something in all its beauty and glory. It's the revealing of Jesus. Now look at the imagery that is used in that passage. Uh, I think we have the, if you want to put verse 2 up there so they can see it, Um, the imagery there of his transfiguration. It says, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. His radiance and glory were shining through his face. It's just as what Hebrews 1.3 says, he is the radiance of the glory of God. And in that moment, they saw this as it literally was true. Even his clothes could not contain his glory. For the first time, 
Jesus' glory is being shown to people. It reminds me of what will be. What will be. You know, Revelation speaks that there, the, the sun will be seen forever. That there will be an eternal day. That the light will always shine. And I don't know if you know from Genesis 1 that uh, the light was made and then later the sun was made. Did you ever notice that? Did you ever think like, well, how did you have the light without the sun, right? Or any of the heavenly bodies. It was the glory of God, the radiance of God himself shining from eternity. And now at the end of the age, we will have an eternal sun that will reign over us in light and splendor and beauty. And it will be the glory of our king. He will be our son for eternity. Isn't that amazing? So that they are seeing here a glimpse of eternal glory in Christ's face. They are seeing a glimpse of this plan that God has been unfolding from beginning, from the beginning. They're seeing his glory. And that's how the apostles later would speak of this event, like apostle, the apostle John in John chapter 1, verse 14. He said, the word, Jesus Christ, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. We were, I, I, John the Apostle, I was there on the mountain and I saw his glory. We saw him. We saw his glory in display. He was brimming over with grace and truth. It's true what John says four verses later, that no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. He has made him known. That's John 1.18. The Apostle Peter looked at this event as the difference maker between them and the pagan cults that were around them. They weren't following myths, right? They weren't following a mythology or creating a new mythology. They had seen him, the king, coming in his glory. They were eyewitnesses. He says this, in his second epistle, chapter 1, it's on the slide, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven. For we were with him on the holy mountain. They saw him in his power and in his glory. They were eyewitnesses to the coming of Christ's kingdom to earth. Church, I want you to know today that in a sense, we also behold his glory. There is a sense in which we behold his glory by faith. And when we behold him, the scripture says that we are changed more and more into this very same glorious image that they saw on the mountain. 
Did you know that, church? That what they saw on the mountain, we are being conformed into. We are being changed into by the power and working of the Holy Spirit. That's what 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18 says. We all, with unveiled face, we have no longer been blinded by the God of this world. Our veils have been torn away by Christ. We see him face to face with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We all beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Do you believe that, church? That the very same thing that the apostles saw, that glorious splendor, we're being conformed into that image. That's incredible. Amen, right? Praise God. He is changing us into glory. We're being molded into the image of Christ. As we put off the deeds of the flesh, and as we put on the new self created after the image of Christ, right, according to Ephesians, as we empty ourselves, we can then be filled with the fullness of God, with all his glory. As we behold Christ, we are transformed into the same glory. That is why we have these constant commands throughout the scriptures. Put off the old self, put on the new self, the image of Christ. Be conformed to his image. So church, I'm just going to give you an application to start with, right? Behold him. As they beheld him, behold him. Consider him. Consider this one who from the beginning of the foundation of the world, God's plan has been to glorify. Consider him who is in the heavenlies, right? Set your minds on the things of God. As Jesus said in this last chapter, chapter 16, set your minds on the things of God. Set your mind on the things of the Spirit. Set your mind on the heavenlies where Christ is seated above all power and authority. And as you set your mind on him, you will be conformed into the same image. You will be filled more and more with this light of Christ. Do you believe that, church? So behold him, consider him, remember him, meditate on his laws, consider his gospel and his doctrines, remember him in his suffering and his death, remember him in the power of his resurrection, recall his glory and authority at the right hand of the throne of God, bring to mind his promises, let all he is be as a picture before you, so that you may gaze upon him. Behold him, and you will look more like him. So, that's a little exhortation for you, church. Um, they beheld his glory. We also behold his glory. But there's a lot of other things going on in this passage, right? Uh, we could spend a whole sermon just talking about this transfiguration, this revealing of his glory here on the mountain. Um, but there's a lot more going on that I think is important for us to look at. Because Jesus, he's speaking about the coming of his kingdom. And that brings a lot of questions up in chapter 16, verse 28. So look at verses 27 through 28. Uh, should be up there, yep. 
So it says this, for the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly, I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, everybody is asking the question, what does that mean? Right? How can Jesus say that he was to come in his kingdom in their lifetime? That's what it sounds like he's saying, doesn't it? There's immediacy to what he's saying. How can he say that? He didn't come, though, right? Or did he? Did he come? Hmm? So... There's just two things here that I want to show you about this passage that have to do with the timing of the coming of his kingdom. Number one, the king's kingdom has come. And number two, the king's kingdom will come. First, the kingdom has already come. Jesus said in verse 28, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. His kingdom would come to their generation. Jesus said this time and time again. Look at what Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 23, when he first commissioned the disciples to preach to Israel. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. What? Wait a minute. Uh, anybody, uh, anybody getting their, their boxes kind of messed up, you know? And look at Matthew 23, verse 36. He said, Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. The disciples asked him what the sign of his coming would be in Matthew 24, verse 3. They said, When will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, some translations put end of the world, but that's not what's in light here. It's, it's a talking about an age. Jesus gives a detailed answer in chapter 24 to their question, and then he gives them the great and final sign to precede his coming. In verse 30, Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Well, that sounds a lot like the end, right? Well, look at what he says in verse 32. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. You see that? You know, This generation, sorry, I can't define this generation any differently, right? So there has to be a sense in which the king came and the kingdom came in their generation. From all these passages, we see that clearly, that the kingdom had come within their generation. So listen to the ways, the different ways that the kingdom of God 
did come. Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. You ever read that passage before? You see, he came. He came in the exercise of the authority and power of his spirit. He imposed his divine sovereignty by every miracle he performed, by every demon. He said, you cannot be here. Get out. So he came. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He showed his power. He showed the authority of his kingdom. The kingdom of God was already among them by the power, by the signs and wonders that he was displaying. He also came and brought the kingdom of God among us into our very hearts by his Holy Spirit. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 17 Verse 21, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, right? That helps us interpret everything that we've been hearing about how the kingdom came, right? It's not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, right? It's not going to be a location, a spatial thing that that you can go over there and there's the kingdom of God. It's going to be established right there or here. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Other translations put that more literally. The kingdom of God is within you. So you see, it is coming to reside in your body and your heart. He also came in his glory, full of grace and truth. The fullness of his glory seen by a select few on this mountain of transfiguration, which is what we're reading about here today. I just can't get past this, that after saying in chapter 16, verse 28, that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom, that then it always records in every gospel that it's only about six days, maybe eight days later, that they then saw him on the Mount of Transfiguration. That's not accidental. This was part of the fulfillment of this. They were seeing the king in his glory. He also came. Look at all, there's so many ways in which Christ came. He also came, this is like the fourth way, uh, in fierce judgment upon those who had rejected him as Messiah. Now maybe this is a little bit less known, this, this fact that he did come in judgment. In that generation, he devoted Jerusalem and the temple to destruction. And he completed that destruction in 70 AD when the Romans marched in and raised Jerusalem and the temple to the ground. And no temple has stood in Jerusalem since. There have been attempts made throughout these last 2,000 years to rebuild it, but they cannot subvert the wrath of God that came for rejecting the Messiah. Destruction had to come upon that generation. This was in fulfillment of the Scriptures. The last verse of the Old Testament, Malachi 4.6, he came and struck the land with a decree of utter destruction. Right? Malachi 4.6, do you remember that? He says, we've been talking about that a little bit recently, haven't we? Um, 
He says, I'm going to read the whole passage for you, or the verse. He will turn the hearts of fathers to the children. Speaking of Elijah, the prophet to come. He will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And then there's this warning of judgment if they refuse him. Lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Was that not fulfilled? It was by the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. This is a little bit less known fact. I find that we don't talk about this historical event that fulfilled it uh, because we don't have that recorded in the New Testament, but it's a historical fact. And there's so many, I, I encourage you to look more into this. Uh, there's so much resources on, on how you see, even in the history of Josephus recording this event, uh, that this was judgment from God. It was recorded, even by Josephus, that during the destruction of the temple and of Jerusalem, that there were chariots of fire over heaven. Chariots coming. His kingdom coming in power to destroy Jerusalem and the temple. So I encourage you to look at that. Um, some, some research for you to do. And Jesus, he also prophesied this in Matthew 24 too that this would come. You see all these, do you not, right? He's with the disciples in Jerusalem. He's looking, they're looking at the temple and the mighty buildings in Jerusalem. You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so it was. It was totally raised by the Romans. The Lord came in judgment, repaying each one according to their deeds. The last way that he came in his kingdom, he came and was given by his father all authority because of what he suffered. That's why at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, the resurrected Lord prefaces the Great Commission with a word about his authority. What does he say in Matthew 28, 18? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go. Right? It is off of that kingdom authority that we are commissioned today. Off of that authority that he obtained at the cross. It's exactly what the author of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 2, 8 through, 8 through 9. I think I have that up there. Hebrews. Oh, yeah, there it is. It says, now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. Right? The Father putting everything in subjection to the Son, Christ. He left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. We cannot observe the kingdom in its righteous reign, right? But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. He was crowned with glory because of what he suffered. You see, he obtained authority that he did not have before. Dominion that he won. The victorious conqueror, Jesus, the lamb who was slain, conquered. He conquered death. He judged his enemy, Satan. He took all sovereignty away from Satan over this world. Do you believe it, church? 
That is the great, our great hope, that he has taken all authority. So the Lord came, and all these are parts of the fulfillment of the coming of Christ's kingdom. However, there's something missing, isn't there? There's something missing. In all these passages, we even feel it a little bit, this tension of, well, but that's not quite everything that he seems to be talking about, right? Is it limited to his generation, all the things he's talking about? It doesn't seem to be, and it's not. We do not yet see him. This is, this is part of the reason why. We do not yet see him exercising complete authority over all things, do we? That's the problem that the author of Hebrews brings up. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So why is that? Because there yet remains a sense in which he must come, and he will come. He will come in his kingdom and glory. Do you believe a church? So, number two, the, king, the king's kingdom will come. It's implied again in that Hebrews passage in verse 5. He says, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. I think verse 5 is up there of Hebrews chapter 2. Um, <clears throat> it was not to, nope. Oh, don't have it? Okay. No? Oh, I thought it was over there. Um, it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come. It doesn't just say subjected the world, but the world to come, of which we are speaking. The world to come. You see, the present world must be judged completely. It must be destroyed as by fire in the judgment of Christ. And it must be replaced by new heavens and a new earth. This is what the scriptures talk about all throughout the scriptures, the new heavens and the new earth, the world to come. And in that day, when he brings his judgment, all will see him come in his glory and authority and power. His sign will be seen throughout the heavens, and all the nations will tremble as they see this king who they have rejected. He will impose his sovereignty. He will at last and totally and utterly destroy that false lord, Satan, and his kingdom will reign without end. His sun will never set. He will come. Jesus' apocalyptic prophecies in Matthew 24 speak to the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in their own generation that was fulfilled in 70 A.D., but clearly also of a later time. Is that not clear if you've ever read Matthew 24, what it describes there of the Antichrist, right? The destruction of the people of God, the false prophets and Antichrist that will rise. It's very clear and evident, isn't it? If you've ever read that, maybe you should read it if you haven't. So it's clear that he must come. So there yet remains a sense in which the kingdom of Christ is still coming. Now, at this point, you may be wondering, how can that be, right? How can Jesus be speaking of something that must happen in their generation, but also of something that must still happen in the future? Isn't that double talk, right? Aren't you maybe putting your own interpretation on this to make it fit these two things? Well, I don't think so. Uh, I believe this because Jesus himself points to this interpretation in his text, that this is a way and I think the way to interpret prophecy. He points to this. He gives an interpretive key by what he says about Elijah. Okay, now we're going into the third point of our sermon. But it's about what he says in, about Elijah. In chapter 17, 
verses 11 through 12. He says, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come. Does it sound like he's contradicting himself? Does it? He says he does come, he will come, he already came. And they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. You see how Elijah's, the way he fulfilled prophecy, was pointing to the way that the Messiah would fulfill prophecy. So there's a sense in which Elijah had already come in the person of John the Baptist, and yet a sense in which he was still coming, and so it is with the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It has come, and yet it still is coming. You see that? Hopefully that makes sense. That's, a, that's something I've been racking my brain about for years, so I don't totally expect you to maybe get it. I really try to make it simple, but, um, but it is it's one of those. It's, it's pretty difficult. You know, I know a lot of um, good theologians who are like confused about it. I'm like, why are you confused? Let me explain it to you. No, I'm kidding. Um, so, <clears throat> so that leads to the third thing I want you to see from this passage. It regards the coming of the king's herald, Elijah, right? A herald. We all know what a herald is. We have the local herald in Burlington, right? No, I'm kidding. But you usually hear about like the Boston herald, right? Is the person who goes before someone to proclaim a message, right? to speak of some news, to prepare their way, their coming. And that's what, so that's what I mean by herald. Uh, Elijah was this herald prophesied. And what we learn about Christ's herald is two things. And you can see this on the slide. There it is. The king's herald had already come. And number two, the king's herald will come. Does this sound familiar, right? This is kind of what we've been already talking about, the kingdom. Now, Jesus is responding to a question with his answer, with what he read in, in verses 11 through 12. He's responding to a question that the disciples gave him, right? In chapter 17, verse 10, did you see that? So let's look at that first. They ask this. Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Right? The disciples are a little confused because the theologians of the day were telling them a very clear timeline. They had seen very clearly in the Old Testament prophecies that this would be the timeline. First Elijah comes, then the Messiah, then the kingdom. And so now, here they are, right? They see I mean, in the previous chapter, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Messiah. He's already made this profession. He knows you, you, you are the Christ. And now they're seeing him in his glory. It's irrefutable. And so now they, they have, they're confused. Well, wh- why do the scribes teach us this thing? That, that the Elijah must come. He didn't come, right? So they have this timeline. Now, let me just explain that, that They got that timeline very clearly from Malachi 4, 5 through 6, which I already mentioned verse 6, but let me read you the whole uh, part of that prophecy. The last two verses of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. You see that? That's pretty clear, right? Elijah must come before 
And he will turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the hearts of children to the fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So that's why the Jews um, in their day and still to this day, when they celebrate Passover, what do they do? Do you know this practice? They set out a seat for Elijah. They're still waiting for Elijah to come. He must come first. So they set out a seat for him, waiting for him. It's also why the Pharisees asked John the Baptist if he was Elijah. Now, in Jesus' response, he shows that their chronology is right. Yeah, you're right. First Elijah, then the Messiah, then the kingdom. But they aren't accounting for other factors in their prophecies, in the prophecies of the Old Testament, and they don't have the whole picture of God's plan. Now, it's helpful at this point to look at Mark's parallel account of the transfiguration. Most of the Gospels have parallel accounts of this very same story because it's so important. And Mark, in the answer that he records of Jesus, he gives more flesh to Jesus' answer. So I want to look at that. Mark 9, 12 through 13. Um, There it is. Jesus said, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And then he says this, and how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? All of a sudden, he's bringing it back to the Messiah, the Son of Man. How is that true? How how can it be that Elijah would come and that the Messiah would reign in his kingdom, but also somehow suffer and be held in contempt and be rejected, as the prophecies say? And then he says, but I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. So you see, the scribes, they weren't accounting for the prophecies relating to the suffering of the Messiah. They weren't accounting for passages like Isaiah 53, which is all about him taking on grief, being a sacrifice, right? They weren't accounting for this. They they wanted him to skip the suffering part. They didn't get that part. And go right to the kingdom reign. And it's funny because the scribes didn't get it. The the religious leaders of the day didn't get it. But neither did the disciples, right? No one seems to have gotten this, right? I don't know if we see anybody getting this. Even though Jesus is saying it over and over again. That he must suffer and be killed. And that he must be raised from the dead. Right? We talked about that last week. But what were their responses every time that he said this? Well, in last week, what was their response? In last week's passage, Peter said, May it never be, Lord. May it never be. This will never happen to you, right? He didn't get it. He didn't get that he must suffer first. And Jesus puts it bluntly in Mark 9, 31 through 32. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him And when he is killed, after three days he will rise. Can you get any more clear than that, right? He just said that in their face. But what was their response in verse 32 of Mark 9? The disciples did not understand the saying. The disciples did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. I don't know what you're talking about. That sounds weird, scary. We're not going to even ask you about that. It doesn't make sense to us. Because don't, don't the scribes say Elijah comes and then, you know? So they were in their boxes, and Jesus kept trying to 
help them to see he was preparing them for when it would come. But the disciples didn't understand. And how could you, really, in that time, how could you take these things, these two things together, that the Messiah must come and bring his kingdom, and yet that the Messiah also must suffer and be rejected. How can you put these two things together? I mean, really, I don't know, if I was a scribe back in the day, I don't know if I could have, but looking back, we, we, have, we have the answer. We see it. Praise God, you know, we see it. So, he must suffer many things. He, he must. How can, it, how can, the question they may have asked, how can he be handed over to the power of his enemies and still achieve victory. So they weren't accounting for these prophecies. Um, they weren't accounting that he must suffer first to establish his kingdom. And now here's the point. So it was with Elijah. So it was. As it was with Elijah, so it was with the Messiah. Elijah, too, must be rejected. He must suffer at the hands of the enemy, and he also must die. Look at Mark 9.13. We already read it. I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. They did to him whatever they pleased. You see, Elijah did come in John the Baptist. He called out the king of Judah for his sexual sin. Right? He had taken his brother's wife. And for that, he was imprisoned for calling out the king of Judah. And later, he was beheaded on a whim because of the scheming of the king's new wife and because the king had made a promise to his daughter that he had to keep. Right? On a whim, he was beheaded. So Elijah did come, and they did to him whatever they pleased. But notice that in that verse, it says, as it was written of him, right? Those last, that last phrase there, as it is written of him. Everyone's asking, where was it written of him, right? Everyone's wondering that. Where was it written of him? <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I was waiting for someone to say that. That'd be my brother. So, now here's the thing. You won't find this specific direct phrase in the Old Testament. If you look for a prophecy that says this specific thing, you won't find it. Instead, you'll find the narrative and history of Elijah in 1 Kings. You'll see Elijah where he was opposed by the king of God's people, right? The king of Israel, Ahab, who had introduced idol worship to God's people, who had rejected the worship of God and was hunting down the prophets of God, slaughtering them. You have to look back at 1 Kings and see this king who married a pagan woman named Jezebel, who taught God's people sexual immorality and adultery against God's covenants. Together they hunted the prophets and slaughtered to them so that Elijah had to live in the wilderness, nourished by God. Now, we don't have time for I wish we could do a whole sermon just looking at those passages in 1 Kings about Elijah to see the parallels. The parallels are many. John the Baptist, he also found his provision from God in the wilderness. He also founded his ministry in the wilderness. He also troubled Israel with his exhortations and prophecies, the call to repent, 
He also was opposed by the supposed king of God's people, who also entered into an unnatural marriage with his brother's wife. She, like Jezebel, did as she pleased. They both did as they pleased. Like Ahab and Jezebel, they did with John as they pleased, seeking to destroy him. And so John the Baptist fulfilled Elijah's ministry. You see, this narrative, this history, Jesus is taking it as prophetic. He's saying, this isn't just a story. This isn't just history. What you're seeing is what must happen to Elijah. Do you realize that? That sometimes we read the scripture a little bit differently than Jesus and the apostles did, right? Because who reads that as prophetic, right? The Old Testament that you see that all throughout the New Testament, the apostles and Jesus reading things like this as being prophetic. So that'll change your, you know, your uh, dichotomy, your systems, your structures, your mind, your boxes. So, <clears throat> so Elijah's ministry, John the Baptist, he fulfilled it, and he, John the Baptist, foreshadowed the rejection and crucifixion of the Messiah. And that's exactly what the angel Gabriel had said of him, that he would fulfill Elijah's ministry before he was born. The angel Gabriel appeared to his father, Zechariah, right, in Luke 1. And what did he say to him? He will be great before the Lord. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So you see, Elijah did come. He prepared the way of the Lord. He prepared hearts for Christ's coming. He preached a gospel of repentance. Turn from your sin and turn to the Lord in obedience. He preached a baptism of repentance. Elijah has already come and they missed it. And yet, John the Baptist couldn't totally turn all the people's hearts to Christ because they rejected him and his kingdom. And so what was spoken of in Malachi 4.6 came true. That generation was devoted to destruction. Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed. So John the Baptist fulfilled the spirit and power of Elijah, the restoration and repentance of God's people. And yet there remains a sense in which he still must come. A sense in which he still does come to prepare the way of the Lord, the second coming of Christ, the total establishment of his kingdom and his glory. There yet remains a work to be done to prepare for God's glory to come to this earth in Christ. And so the king's herald does come and will come. It's just as Jesus said in Matthew eleven fourteen, 14, if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He is Elijah who is to come. You see? Do you get it? So you see how it's a little bit complicated? I was like, oh boy, I got a complicated message to preach today. Um, <clears throat> so hopefully you're, you're getting it, and if you don't, there's so many resources on this to look at. Um, 
But those are the two things I wanted you to see about the coming of the King's Herald. He has come, and he will come, and that is all I have for you today. That's it. So, and I don't know how long I've been going because there's no timer there, so maybe I've been going a long time. I don't know. Um, but in conclusion, church, uh, it's easy to hear a sermon like this. When I said, oh, that's, it, that's all I have, I meant, uh, now I'm going to get into my conclusion. So, <laughs> uh, you guys are clapping like, yeah, it's over. All right, let's go to community. Let's get out of here. Um, now, it's easy to hear a sermon like this and wonder, well, what about me? How does this apply to my life? You know, that's what everybody's asking, right? So, uh, oftentimes, though, the scriptures introduce us to teachings that bring us to something greater than ourselves. And that's what's happening today. And it's simply by receiving this knowledge and believing it that we are already applying it. That's where we're already beginning to apply it. Uh, but still, pointed applications are nice, right? So, and uh, there are three takeaways that I'd like you, <laughs> in light of that, that I'd like you to leave with you to change your perspective. So, number one, Christ's kingdom has come. Live in that knowledge. You're living in his kingdom. It has already come. It is in your heart. It is within you. It is in the power of the Holy Spirit. The sovereignty of God displayed by his spirit all around you and through you by his giftings, his miracles and signs. Number two, Christ's kingdom will come. We're busy with the work of waiting, aren't we? That's what the scripture leads us to, to be busy with the work of waiting till he comes at last to restore all things. We must wait with expectation, and we must, like Elijah, make ready his paths, for judgment will come, and he will repay each person according to his deeds. Number three, behold his glory, as they did on the Mount of Transfiguration. Behold his glory because his kingdom is here and because his kingdom will come. Just as they beheld his glory in the mountain, we also can behold his glory because his kingdom is here in our hearts, because Christ dwells within you. The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord, there is freedom. And He lives within you, so behold Him and be transformed. He is changing us. He is near right here. His Word is in our mouths. He is changing us as we look to Him. And we must behold His glory because His kingdom is coming. We know not when, but it surely comes. It is near. It's at the very gates. It is upon us. So let us make ready our hearts in holiness and in godliness, conforming ourselves to that image, the image of Christ. Be alert. Be ready. Look to Christ. And by his grace, he will make us a people ready. A people ready for his coming, for the final establishment of his kingdom. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for these truths. Lord, it's so, it's so deep. It's so deep to see your plans that have been coming from the foundation of the world to bring glory to your Son, to fill all things with the image and perfection of Christ. Oh, Lord, we thank you that you have not hidden these things from us, you have shown them to us. We are not servants that you hide these facts from, 
we are your children. We are the brothers and sisters of your son, Christ. You are revealing them to us, these mysteries of the coming of your kingdom. So Lord, for your glory to abound, would you put this word deep into our hearts? Would you let it bear fruit? Would you help us to behold your son? Lord, right now there are things in our life that distract us, that make us look to the things of man, that make us look to the things of earth and not to the things of God not to the things of your spirit, not to the heavenlies where Christ is seated, not to Christ, not to behold him. So Lord, let us throw aside these weights that hinder us. Lord, would you right now identify those things in our hearts that are distracting us? Let us empty ourselves, just like Christ did. Let us empty ourselves so that we may be filled with your fullness the fullness of God in Christ, that we may be conformed to this glorious image of Christ, the image that they saw in the Mount of Transfiguration. Lord, take this church, take Redeemer Church, take this church in Montpelier, Imago Christi Church. That's the name that we're coming up with for the church. I just announced it to everyone on accident. So that is, and that's image of Christ, the image of Christ, Imago Christi. Lord, let it be true, let those words be true, that we are a people who reflect the glorious image of your Son. Let us be a people prepared for your coming. And we will be for your glory in this generation. We pray it all in the name and power of your Son, Jesus the Christ. Amen.